Ezekiel chapter 21, verses 28 through 32. It says, And you, son of man, prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord God concerning the Ammonites and concerning their reproach. Say, A sword, a sword is drawn for the slaughter. It is polished to consume and to flash like lightning. While they see for you false visions, while they divine lies for you, to place you on the necks of the profane wicked, whose day has come, the time of their final punishment, return it to its sheath in the place where you were created. In the land of your origin, I will judge you. I will pour out my indignation upon you. I will blow upon you with the fire of my wrath, and I will deliver you into the hands of brutish men, skillful to destroy. You shall be fuel for the fire. Your blood shall be in the midst of the land. You shall no more be remembered, for I, the Lord, have spoken. Now, as we get back into our study in our, of Ezekiel here and back up to speed, we need to cover briefly these last verses where we left off last, mainly to remind us of where we were, but also to refresh us as to how to study prophecy. So what I want you to see tonight is from this passage, it looks confusing, and it is confusing unless you understand the whole of the Scripture and all the prophecies that are tied to this. Because here we see Ezekiel's told to prophesy against which nation? The Ammonites. And as you see, there's a sword for their slaughter. You see at the end of the passage, it says, uh, verse 32, You shall be fuel for the fire. Your blood shall be in the midst of the land. You shall be no more remembered, for I, the Lord, have spoken. So it sounds like it's an utter annihilation of the Ammonites that's coming. On top of that, though, we see in verse 30, though, that the person is told to return his sword to its sheath. In other words, you put it back in its sheath, they're not quite done yet. So which is it? Are they, are they going to wipe out the Ammonites or are they not going to wipe out the Ammonites? And the only way you fully understand this is to let the whole of Scripture get, give you a better picture. Now, before I have you turn there, you can go ahead and turn there. Go to Jeremiah 49. We're going to look at verses 1 through 6. This is the danger of listening to prophecy teachers that only use one passage of Scripture to try to build their theology when it comes to end times. Folks, there's a lot of different views as to eschatology. Would you not agree? If you've studied prophecy, there's many, many different views on how it's all going to play out. And you'll hear people say things like this. Well, my Bible says, and they'll read a passage of Scripture. And you know what? That passage may read that way. But the problem is they've only read one passage, and there's other passages that shed more light. When you put it all together, all of a sudden you'll get a clearer picture. And so in Jeremiah 49, look at verses 1 through 6. It says, Concerning the Ammonites, thus says the Lord, Has Israel no sons? Has he no heir? Why then has Milcom dispossessed Gad and his people settled in his cities? In other words, the Ammonites, when God was judging the nation of Israel, the Ammonites came in and started taking over their land. And God pretty much says, uh, Does Israel have no heirs? Why do the Ammonites feel like they have to take over the land? Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will cause the battle cry to be heard against Rabbah of the Ammonites. And Rabbah is the main city of the Ammonites. And it shall become a desolate mound, and its villages shall be burned with fire. Then Israel shall dispossess those who dispossessed him, says the Lord. Wail, O Heshbon, for Ai is laid waste. Cry out, O daughters of Rabbah. Put on sackcloth, lament, and run to and fro among the hedges. For Milcom shall go into exile with his priests and his officials. Why do you boast of your valleys, O faithless daughter, who trusted in her treasures, saying, Who will come against me? Behold, I will bring terror upon you, declares the Lord God of hosts, from all who are around you. And you shall be driven out, every man straight before him, with none to gather the fugitives. But afterward I will restore the fortunes of the Ammonites, declares the Lord. 
Now we see why in Ezekiel there's going to be a returning to the sheath of the sword, yet at the same time they're going to be plundered and no longer remembered. When you put it all together in the final judgment at the end of the tribulation period, when God is judging all the nations, the Ammonites are going to be wiped out. Yet, not ultimately, because God Excuse me, God is going to remember the Ammonites, and we'll explain in a second why. And during the millennial kingdom, they are actually going to be, their fortunes are going to be restored, and there will be Ammonites that live in the millennial kingdom. All right, so this is why a proper understanding and a fuller understanding of all the Old Testament prophecies will help us get a better description of what is to come. But I want you also to turn to Jeremiah chapter 12. Because if you were to do a full study of Jeremiah 48 and 49 and following, you would find that some nations are told they're going to be restored. Other nations are told they will not be restored. If you were to do a study, you'll see that you know that God's going to restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, correct? We know that now that the Ammonites are going to have their fortunes restored. Egypt's going to have their fortunes restored. But Damascus, Syria is going to be utterly destroyed and the Sir Syria will not restore their fortunes. Edom, if you did a study, Edom will not have their fortunes restored. So how come, what is the measuring stick? How does God determine which nations are going to get their fortunes restored in the millennial kingdom and which ones not? How they treated Jews. And I'm going to say yes, but as you're about to see, that's only part of it. There's actually a deeper understanding of it than that. And I've been telling you for a while how the nations treated Israel will be the ones who get to go into the millennial kingdom. And that's correct. But God showed me something even more deep in Jeremiah chapter 12, it's more than just than how they treated the Jews during the tribulation period or throughout history. In Jeremiah chapter 12, look at verses 14 through 17. Thus says the Lord concerning all my evil neighbors who touch the heritage that I have given my people Israel to inherit. Pretty clear, isn't it? All the people that touch the land of Israel. Behold, I will pluck them up from their land and I will pluck up the house of Judah from among them. And after I have plucked them up, I will again have compassion on them, and I will bring them again each to his heritage and each to his land. And it shall come to pass, if they will diligently learn the ways of my people to swear by my name as the Lord lives, even as they taught my people to swear by Baal, then they shall be built in the, up in the midst of my people. But if any nation will not listen, then I will utterly pluck it up and destroy it, declares the Lord. Here we see a little bit more. It's not just how they treated Israel, it's whether or not they're going to turn to the God of Israel in those days. In the same way in which these nations taught Israel to worship the Baals, God's going to use the nation of Israel to turn the nations to Him. And if the nations will turn and say, Jehovah is God, the God of Israel is the true God, the only God, Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is King, those nations will be able to be a part of the Millennial Kingdom. So it's yes, how they treated Israel, that's the beginning of the Millennial Kingdom Judgment, as you know, in Matthew 25, and the sheep and the goats. You, you did it to these brothers of mine. You've done it to me. At the same time, now we see it's also if they're willing to what? To turn to God and to worship God. If they think, well, we'll let the Jews have their God and we'll still have our gods. They're not in. They're not going to be restored. So that's why. If you were to do a full study, and it takes days and weeks and years and months to really dig, dig, dig into it. And that's what people like my job is. And you have a responsibility as well because God's given you his spirit and he's given you his word. Take the time. Dig into the studies. But don't build your theology on one passage of scripture that looks like it says, well, these guys are wiped out forever. Well, yeah. 
He's going to do a pretty good job of wiping them out. But over here it says he's going to restore them. Well, why then? Well, over here it says why. And over here it says why. And that's why, and my hope is, as I teach you the prophecies, and I teach you Ezekiel and Jeremiah in these passages, you're coming to a deeper understanding of the fact that there are a lot of views out there when it comes to end times, but the only one that actually uses all of the scriptures and puts them all together, doesn't just use one here or a passage there, but they use all the scriptures, is the pre-trib, pre-mill actual literal millennial kingdom on the earth view of the church and, and God's plan for the kingdom. And that's the only one that uses all the passages of Scripture. So let's go back to Ezekiel 32 now. We're gonna, I'm going to read to you the entire chapter because then we're going to take some time to break it down into sections. Now, as we're turning to Ezekiel 22, let me remind you, we've been hearing for a while about the coming judgment of, of uh, Jerusalem. And as you know, it came in three waves in our history. We know it came in uh, 597. Uh, sorry, 605, then in 597, and then ultimately in 588, to, finished in 586. The 588-586 judgment hasn't finished yet. And when Ezekiel is saying what he's saying, Jerusalem still has not been wiped off the map and taken captive like they're going to be at the end by Nebuchadnezzar. But we're getting very, very close to it. And you're about to see as I read this to you that during this section here in chapter 22, God is going to be telling the nation of Israel exactly why He's going to be doing what he's doing. So in chapter 22, verse 1, it says, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, And you, son of man, will you judge? Will you judge the bloody city? Then declare to her all her abominations. You shall say, Thus says the Lord God, a city that sheds blood in her midst, so that her time may come and makes idols to defile herself. You have become guilty by the blood that you have shed and defiled by the idols that you have made, and you have brought your days near the appointed time of your years has come. Therefore, I have made you a reproach to the nations and a mockery to all the countries. Those who are near and those who are far from you will mock you. Your name is defiled. You are full of tumult. Behold, the princes of Israel in you, every one according to his power, have been bent on shedding blood. Father and mother are treated with contempt in you. The sojourner suffers extortion in your midst. The, excuse me, the fatherless and the widow are wronged in you. You have despised my holy things and profaned my Sabbaths. There are men in you who slander to shed blood, and people in you who eat on the mountains. They commit lewdness in your midst. In you, men uncover their father's nakedness. In you, they violate women who are unclean in their menstrual impurity. One commits abomination with his neighbor's wife. Another lewdly defiles his daughter-in-law. Another in you violates his sister, his father's daughter. And you, in you, they take bribes to shed blood. You take interest and profit and make gain of your neighbor by extortion. But me you have forgotten, declares the Lord God. Behold, I strike my hand at the dishonest gain that you have made and at the blood that has been in your midst. Can your courage endure or can your hands be strong in the days that I shall deal with you? I, the Lord, have spoken and I will do it. I will scatter you among the nations and disperse you through the countries and I will consume your uncleanness out of you and you shall be profaned by your own doing in the sight of the nations and you shall know that I am the Lord." And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, the house of Israel has become dross to me. All of them are bronze and iron and tin and lead in the furnace. They are dross of silver. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have all become dross, therefore, behold, I will gather you into the midst of Jerusalem as one gathers silver and bronze and iron and lead and tin into a furnace to blow the fire on it to, in order to melt it so that I will gather you and in my anger and in my wrath and I will put you in and melt you. 
I will gather you and blow on you with the fire of my wrath, and you shall be melted in the midst of it. As silver is melted in a furnace, so shall you be melted in the midst of it, and you shall know that I am the Lord. I have poured out my wrath upon you. And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, say to her, you are a land that is not cleansed or rained upon in the day of indignation. The conspiracy of her prophets in her midst is like a roaring lion tearing the prey. They have devoured human lives. They have taken treasure and precious things. They have made many widows in her midst. Her priests have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. They have made no distinction between the holy and the common. Neither have they taught the difference between unclean and the clean. And they have disregarded my Sabbath so that I am profaned among them. Her princes in her midst are like wolves, tearing the prey, shedding blood, destroying lives to get dishonest gain. And her prophets have smeared whitewash for them, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, Thus says the Lord God, when the Lord has not spoken. The people of the land have practiced extortion and committed robbery. They have oppressed the poor and needy and have extorted from the sojourner without justice. And I sought for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the land that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Therefore I have poured out my indignation upon them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. I have returned their way upon their heads, declares the Lord God. Now, we're going to take some time and break down this chapter into sections, because as the final judgment is about to fall on Israel and Jerusalem, God gets very specific as to what Israel has done and why God is doing what he's going to do. The first thing he shows, and I want you to see that, you're going to notice this in verses 2, 3, 4, 6, 9, 10, and 12. In verses 2, 3, 4, 6, 9, 10, and 12, he shows that they've become a bloody city. Listen to these verses. In verse 2, and you, son of man, will you judge? Will you judge the bloody city? Verse 3, a city that sheds blood in her midst. Verse 4, you have become guilty by the blood that you have shed. Look at verse 6. Behold, the princes of Israel in you, every one of you, according to his power, have been bent on shedding blood. Verse 9, there are men in you who slander to shed blood. Verse 10, in you they violate women who are unclean in their menstrual impurity. Verse 12, in you they take bribes to shed blood. Now, we're not going to take the time tonight to do the full study on this, but if you were to do a full study on the importance of blood and what it means and what it represents, and of course, as you know, the life is in the blood, and God had designed the blood not only to give life, but also be what gives us life spiritually through Jesus' blood being shed. But they had become so bent on shedding blood, blood had lost its purity. Blood, blood had lost its special significance. The specialness of blood had been lost. And as you know, all through history, God had been showing them the importance and the specialness and the holiness and the purity of blood, ultimately, of course, pointing to Jesus Christ and what he would do for us. But they had lost sight of it to the point that they were bent on shedding blood. They didn't care about God's law, about, about how to avoid blood. And they were ignoring all that stuff. And they had become a bloody city to the point that blood was nothing to them. And they had lost it. Another thing we see, you're going to see this in verses 3, 4, 8, 12, and then 26 and 27 is that also along with this, they despised God's holy things by worshiping idols and taking advantage of one another. Look at verse 3. Verse 3, it says, they make idols to defile herself. Verse 4, and defiled by the idols that you have made and you have brought. All right, and look at verse 8. You have despised my holy things and profaned my Sabbaths. Verse 12, but me you have forgotten, declares the Lord. Verses 26 and 27. 
For priests have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. They have made no distinction between the holy and the common. Neither have they taught the difference between the unclean and the clean. And they have disregarded my Sabbaths so that I am profaned among them. Now we're going to stop and talk for a second here because I want to make sure you're with me. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. What was the big deal? Why was it so important that they had lost the difference and the distinction between holy and unholy clean and unclean, and def- therefore defiled themselves. What had happened? Why is that a big deal? Very good. Very, very good. It's what's going on today. If there's no such thing as right and wrong, holy, unholy, clean, unclean, things that are okay, things that aren't okay, then there's no sin. If there's no sin, there's no need to have your sin taken care of. And all of a sudden, things just fall to pieces. And he said, I have been trying to teach you all along, holy, unholy, special, not special, pure, not pure, right versus wrong, righteous versus unrighteous. And you all have gotten to the point now where there's no such thing. And because of that, now you say there's no such thing as sin. We'll get to a little further in a little bit in our study tonight. You'll see not only that, the priest started saying it was okay too, which is another thing we'll get to in a little bit. But is that not happening in our world today? Who's, uh, who, who dares say that something is wrong nowadays? You're going to be attacked because you can't say that. To each his own. Everybody gets to determine for themselves what's right and what's wrong. Really, really interesting. Years ago, um, a friend of mine had to deal with a real hard situation where two of her best friends uh, had an episode and, and this lady had two very, very good friends and one killed the other. And she was devastated by the fact that here she was close, close friends with both of these ladies and one actually wait, laid in wait for the other and killed her. She was having a really hard time with it. As I went into her office and sat down and talked with her and saw how, so I said, how are you doing? She said, I got to be honest with you. I am really, really rocked by this. I can't even imagine that someone would do such a thing. And I had the chance to sit down and look at her and say, this is one of the perfect evidences of the fact that there is a God and that there's a difference between right and wrong. Because if everybody, if we all just came from animals, like the world says, what's the big deal? What's the big deal if one person killed another person? Just like a lion waiting in, in, in wait for a zebra. And this lady goes, you know, I've never, ever thought about that before. I said, the reason you're angry, the reason you're upset is something inside of you is saying this isn't right. But if the theology of the world is correct, that we're all evolved from animals and is the survival of the fittest, who cares? Why are you upset? The stronger one laid in wait for the weaker one and they won. And this lady goes, this is proof that there's a God. How I feel, this is proof that there's a God. But when we lose sight of what's right and what's wrong, we're in a mess. And that's where we are as a nation and in the world today. And that's what happened to Israel. God said, you've lost the importance of the purity of blood and its specialness. You've lost the importance of holy things and despised things. You just worshiped idols. You've forgotten me. And you think you're okay. Not only that, like I just touched on earlier, the religious leaders led out in these activities and told them that God was okay with it. Look at verses 23 through 29. 
And tell me this doesn't sound like the, the world today, and especially in church in America. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, say to her, you are a land that is not cleansed or rained upon in the day of indignation. The conspiracy of her prophets in her midst is like a roaring lion tearing the prey. They have devoured human lives. They have taken treasure and precious things. They have made many widows in her midst. Her priests have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. They have made no distinction between the holy and the common. Neither have they taught the difference between the unclean and the clean. And they have disregarded my Sabbaths so that I am profaned among them. Her princes in her midst are like wolves, tearing the prey, shedding blood, destroying lives to get dishonest gain. And her prophets have smeared whitewash for them, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, Thus says the Lord God, when the Lord has not spoken. The people of the land have practiced extortion and committed robbery. They have oppressed the poor and needy and have extorted from the sojourner without justice. Not only had this stuff all gone on, it had already now gotten to the point that the leadership in Israel, the princes, the priests, the prophets, they all were leading out in it and saying it's okay and God's okay with it. And folks, in our day today, even in our churches, good luck finding a church that says certain things are sin nowadays. And if you do, they'll mock you. And, excuse me, the preachers will say, no, God says it's okay when God hasn't said it's okay. Go ahead. Yeah, well, there, there's, there's more than one. There's quite a few. There's many out there, unfortunately, and it's going to continue to increase. That's why judgment comes on a nation. It's coming on Israel at this time, in this time of their history, because of all this. And a judgment comes on all the nations because of all this stuff. And America, folks, we got to be honest. We need to be praying not that we're just pro-Israel. We need to be praying that America turns to the God of Israel. America can be pro-Israel and not be in the Millennial Kingdom. Go ahead. Mm -hmm. After every weekend, you do a body count like it was Vietnam. Yep. Yep. It's it's becoming just the natural way of life and. Until righteousness is allowed to rule and reign, it will get worse and continue. Folks, you do realize the Bible says godlessness is going to increase in the last days more and more and more. That's why when you stand before God, make sure you've been walking to his, with his word. And you'll, you're going to see tonight, even in the midst of the mess, even in the midst of the judgment, even in the midst of the wickedness, God will take care of those whose hearts are committed to him. You can live in a world that's like that. You can live in a country that's like that. But God will take care of you if your heart is committed to him. So they're a bloody city that has lost the importance of purity of blood. They've lost the difference between right and wrong and holy things and unholy things. They've turned away from God. Their priests are now leading out and their princes are now leading out in this. What's God to do? What did he say he was going to do? I want you to just real quick look at verses 13 through 22. Just skim them. What is God saying he's going to do to the Jerusalem and to the Israelites because of all this? He's going to what? Smite. Get it? But specifically, what's the term he uses? What's the word picture he uses? He's going to blow on them in fire and he's going to put them as you would when you would melt silver and gold and put it in a furnace and heat it up. And if you know anything about the dross, when you purify silver and you purify gold or purify any metal, you put it and you heat it up so much that what's impure actually comes off and separates and floats to the surface and you scrape it off. And only what's pure remains. 
And that's what God said he's going to do to Jerusalem at this time. I'm going to put you in the middle of that city, and I'm going to put a fire on it, and I'm going to smite you, and I'm going to blow heat on you, and the dross will be carried away and destroyed, and only what's pure is going to be left. And you'll see by the end of this study, not tonight, but the end of our study, not very, very many people were left in Jerusalem by the time it was all said and done. But he was bringing judgment. Now, let me ask you a question. When you are smelting, do you turn the heat up little by little? You do. You, you, you turn it up just a little bit by little bit to get its attention. And let me just tell you, it's happening. It's happening to us. Part of it is God just saying, hey, you want to go that way? Go right ahead. I'll let you do what you want to do, and we suffer the consequence of it. But God also sometimes, to get our attention, turns up the heat. And I think we as a nation are experiencing that. All right. Now, in the time that we have left tonight, though, I want to deal with just the last verses of chapter 22. The last verses of chapter 22 are a very, very famous passage. But as I read it, a question came to my mind, and I wanted to deal with it tonight. In Jeremiah, sorry, Ezekiel 22, verses 30 to the end of the chapter. And God says, And I sought for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me before the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Therefore I have poured out my indignation upon them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. I have returned their way upon their heads, declares the Lord God. God said when it came time and I saw this need of judgment, I first looked to see if there was anybody that would stand in the gap between me and them, build a wall that I wouldn't destroy them, and I didn't find anyone. And therefore... The judgment is coming. And my first thought was, what about Ezekiel? I mean, or Jeremiah. I mean, if you can't study Ezekiel without studying Jeremiah, and not only Jeremiah, he wasn't the first one to do it. Isaiah had been doing the same thing, standing there preaching to the people, being a prophet to the nations, on top, especially the people of Israel in Jerusalem. Jeremiah comes along, and he boldly proclaims what the judgment of God is coming. Turn, repent, the judgment of God is coming. If you'll listen, you'll be spared. If you'll listen, and you'll, if you'll humble yourself and submit to King Nebuchadnezzar, you'll be okay. But if you rebel, you're going to be wiped out. Ezekiel says, is the same thing. He's preaching these things. We also, if you don't remember, during this time period, at the beginning of the siege of Nebuchadnezzar, back in 605 B.C., God took a guy named Daniel. Wasn't he a pretty impressive young man? Daniel was taken as a young man, and he went off to Babylon, and God used him mightily. You got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or their Hebrew names of Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, also during this time. And so my first thought was, Wait a minute, God, you looked for a man to stand in the gap, and you've got Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. How come these guys didn't count? How come they don't, they don't meet the need? And God began to show me that the role that God had for those men was not to stand in the gap, but to be the prophet, to speak to the people at that time. Let me show you some very interesting passages that you might not have ever looked at in this way. Go to Jeremiah 7. As you are turning there, you remember when Isaiah was called, and God said, who will I send, go, who will go for me? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. Does anyone remember what, what God says next? You're going to be ever preaching and what? 
and they won't listen. You're going to be ever speaking and they won't hear. In Jeremiah 7, though, look at verses 21 through 29. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat the flesh. For in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. But this command I gave them, obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people and walk in all the way that I command you that it may be well with you. But they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels in the stubbornness of their evil hearts and went backward and not forward. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. One thing you need to understand first and foremost is Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, what was their role that God gave them? Was it their role to stand in the gap? Their role was to what? To preach the word. Oh, and God said, they're not going to listen to you. Jeremiah, uh, you're going to be sent to a stiff-necked individual, a group of people. They're going to have hard foreheads, but I'm going to make your forehead just as hard as theirs. And you're going to have a role of preaching to them, but they're not going to listen. You see, for years, we've heard preachers use this passage and who's going to stand in the gap? And that's the danger, folks, of taking a passage of Scripture and not looking in the full context. Some of us weren't called to stand in the gap. We're to pray. We're to intercede. But as you're going to see, but I don't want to get there too soon because we still got a half an hour of study tonight. Who's the only one can stand in the gap? It's Jesus. There's not going to be a man that's going to stand in the gap. It's always going to be Jesus. But we'll get to that in just a little bit. Years ago when I left the pastorate, and I went into this traveling ministry. I was all excited because I was pretty sure I was going to see revival break out around this country. Because, you know, in God's grace, every church I had pastored had gone from small amount to a bigger number. And some had quadrupled in size and quintupled in size in just a few years. And then God put a call on my heart to go travel and speak these truths to churches. And I literally thought I was going to see revival break out around the country. And it wasn't until about five or six years later as I was mulling over it and going, Lord, some of the places fired the pastor for bringing me in. What, this wasn't what I expected. And God spoke very clearly and he said, I never told you that they would listen. I just told you to go say it. That's exactly what it is. Not a person heard a message and responded to it. That's it. If you were to do a study of the word stand in the gap, and as you do, whenever you study scripture, let scripture interpret scripture. It'll take you back to an earlier passage in Ezekiel in chapter 13, I think it is, where it uses that term and it shows. And it's a picture of responding to the message. So that means people like uh, Daniel and people like that, they, had, they were already believers. Yes. A Josiah, if you will. Yeah, and that, right. And he didn't find any. Didn't find any. Their hearts were so hardened. Exactly. That someone was going to say, you know what, I believe this is right. And they stood up and said, we're not going to do this anymore. We're going to walk with God. Someone that responded to the message. Jeremiah and Isaiah, their role was to preach it and to share it. But no one responded and stood in the gap to keep God. Because Moses stood in the gap when he interceded on behalf of the people of Israel back in the wilderness, didn't he? 
and he interceded on their behalf, and God stayed his judgment. So there are times that God will use an individual in that way, but at this point, God said, I looked, and there was none. But what about Ezekiel and Jeremiah? That wasn't their role. God was looking for someone that was going to listen to this message and respond appropriately, and then speak to the people and say, hey, we need to, by the way, boy, wouldn't it be cool if our churches had men that would rise up like that? Stop waiting for somebody else. Stop expecting it to be the pastor's job. But if men in the church will say, you know what? It's time we get serious. Here's what God's been saying. Let's do it. Well, we'll keep going. Go to Jeremiah chapter 6. Interesting word picture here in Jeremiah 6. Look at verses 27 through 30. God speaking to Jeremiah, he said, I made you a tester of metals among my people that you may know and test their ways. They are all stubbornly rebellious, going about with slanders. They are bronze and iron, and all of them act corruptly. The bellows blow fiercely. The lead is consumed by the fire. In vain, the refining goes on, for the wicked are not removed. Rejected silver is called, for the Lord has rejected. They are called, for the Lord has rejected them. What was the role God gave Jeremiah, according to Jeremiah chapter 6 here? I, I used you as a what? Tester of metals. Your job was just to show them where they are. Your job was just to speak to them the truth and show them where they are. They were to respond. If they don't respond, it's not up to you. You're not a failure. Speak the truth and let them respond accordingly. Interestingly enough, though, and this was a surprising thing to me as I did my study on this, the Babylonians listened to Ezekiel and Jeremiah. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Go to Jeremiah 39. Now, in Jeremiah 39, it's, it's when the nation of uh, the city of Jerusalem is being at, uh, finally attacked and Jeremiah is being taken off captive now. He's in chains. We're going to start in verse 11. Jeremiah 39, verse 11. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, gave command concerning Jeremiah through Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, saying, Take him and look after him well and do him no harm, but deal with him as he tells you. So Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, and Nebuchadnezzar, and Rabsaris, the Negal Sarezer, and Rabmag, and all the chief officers of the king of Babylon, sent and took Jeremiah from the court of the guard. And they entrusted him to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, that he should take him home. So he lived among the people. Now the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah while he was shut up in the court of the guard, Go and say to Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I'll fulfill my words against this city for harm and not for good, and they shall be accomplished before you on that day. But I will deliver you on, the day, on that day, declares the Lord, and you shall not be given into the hand of the men of whom you are afraid, for I will surely save you. And you shall not fall by the sword, but you shall save, have your life as a prize, prize of war, because you have put your trust in me, declares the Lord. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had let him go from Ramah, when he took him bound in chains along with all the captives of Jerusalem and Judah, who were being exiled to Babylon, the captain of the guard took Jeremiah and said to him, The Lord your God pronounced this disaster against this place. The Lord has brought it about and has done as he said. Because you guys, you Israelites, sinned against the Lord and didn't obey his voice. This thing has come upon you. Now behold, I release you today from the chains on your hands. If it seems good to you to come with me to Babylon, come on, and I'll look after you well. 
But if it seems wrong for you to come with me to Babylon, don't come. See, the whole land is before you. Go wherever you think it good and right to go. If you remain, then return to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, son of Shaphan, whom the king of Babylon appointed governor of the cities of Judah, and dwell with him among the people. Or go wherever you think it right to go. So the captain of the guard gave him an allowance of food and a present and let him go. Isn't that interesting? In the midst of all this stuff, as they're taking them all captive, they release Jeremiah from the chains and say, Nebuchadnezzar sends word through the captain of the guard, Nebuchadnezzar, hey, let this guy go and give him a free choice. If he wants to come with us to Babylon, we'll take real good care of him. If he wants to just stay here in Israel with the poor of the land and Gedaliah, who we're leaving there as governor, he's welcome to do that as well. Um, but everything you said God was going to do, he's doing. Jeremiah preached. The Jews didn't listen. But the Babylonians heard. Isn't that amazing? Exactly. We're hearing. They're not. Some are. Go to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3, verses 28 through 30. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. And set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own. Therefore I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb. And their houses laid in ruins for there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. And then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. When Shadrach, and Meshach, and Abednego obeyed God and didn't do what, what Nebuchadnezzar said to do. God showed himself strong on their behalf. And Nebuchadnezzar goes, you know what? I think your God's the real God. Isn't it amazing? The Jews had seen what? What have the Jews seen over, Jews seen over their history? His presence, the Shekinah glory. What's that? His provision through the quail and the manna with the Red Sea, the walls of Jericho, the sun standing still. I could go on Aaron's rod that budded. Boom, 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 boom. I'm sorry. Yeah, a whole army is just all of a sudden gone and dead. They come out of the city and they're just laying there all dead. He had shown himself over and over and over. But they didn't listen. So since there was no one to... At that time, who would stand in the gap between God and Israel, and there was a big gap, by the way, there must be another one who will do so in the last days when God restores the fortunes of Israel and they return to him with their whole hearts. Oh, again, as you know, as you've been studying our Revelation study, God's going to send 144,000 witnesses, Jewish witnesses out to go preach the message, but there's going to be one who comes and stands in the gap. And I'm going to ask you a trick question. When is this individual going to stand in the gap. He already did. Good for you, Jeremy. This individual, as you're about to see from Scripture, this one who's going to stand in the gap and do it himself when no one was able to do it, it's Jesus. You all know that. And he already stood in the gap on their behalf. He already did at the cross. He already defeated the enemy through his resurrection from the dead. They're just missing out on the benefits of what he's already accomplished until the day they believe until the day they believe. Go to Isaiah 59. You're going to see all the way through Scripture there's been hints that God had never expected man to do what only he could do. Isaiah 59, look at verses 14 through 21. 
Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. And we already talked about that today. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and he wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob to turn from transgression, declares, who, who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. He saw there was none. So he decided, my own righteousness will do it. Now, just real quick, look at verse uh, 17. For years we've heard the preachers, and I've done it myself, when they preach on Ephesians chapter 6 in the army, I'm sorry, the armor of the Lord. And they, have you ever heard the preacher say, well, the reason why Paul used this illustration of the armor of God is he was being held captive in a jail, and he was being chained by Roman soldiers. And as he looked at the Roman soldier's armor, he said, okay, the breastplate's going to be righteousness, and the helmet's going to be salvation. That's the danger of being lazy in our study, folks. Paul wasn't looking at a Roman soldier. Paul was quoting from Isaiah. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. In Ephesians 6, Paul's quoting from Isaiah 59. Oh, go to Isaiah 63. Look at verse 1. Who is this? Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads, wine in, the, who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Folks, have there been people in the Bible history who for a short period of time stood in the gap, like a Moses or whatever? But they were just pictures of the only one who can stand in the gap. There is not a man. The scripture said all along, there is no one righteous. No, not one. I looked, God said, and there is no one who could do this. I'm going to say to you real quickly, and we'll come back to it in a second. Don't put your confidence in a man ever. Don't put your confidence in a man ever. Go to Revelation chapter 5. Verses 1 through 14. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it even. 
And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. God sent out into all the, the seven spirits of God, which are sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the full living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests who are God and they shall reign on the earth. Can't wait. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of the many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. So when we see in Ezekiel chapter 22, when God says, and I looked and there was no one to stand in the gap. Was that the first time he looked and there was no one to, to do something? No. Isaiah 59, Isaiah 63. Of course, later on is Revelation chapter 5. Folks, all along, it's always been only Jesus who can do it. Any of this attitude says, we need to stand in the gap. No, we can intercede and we can pray and we can seek and we can preach. But who's the only one that can make the change and to bring righteousness? Only Jesus. Only Jesus. Are you looking for a man to rescue you? There is none. Oh, the world's still going to soon follow one, but they're going to be duped. The only one who can right the wrongs and restore righteousness and judgment is God himself, the man God, Jesus Christ. Now, as we close, I'm going to ask you a simple question. And I want you to listen closely before you answer, because your first answer is going to be a quick one, and I don't want it to be quick. Do you know him? I didn't ask, have you heard of him? I haven't asked, do you know about him? I'm asking, do you know him? I didn't ask, did you pray a prayer? I didn't ask, were you baptized? I haven't asked, have you taken Holy Communion? I asked you a simple question. Do you know him? Are you intimate in a relationship with him where you are his and he is yours and you're in communion with him and you know what he's been talking to you about today? You talk to him today. Are you in a relationship where if I were to say, what are you and Jesus talking about today? You could tell me. See, for years as a pastor on Wednesday nights, I would always because I love to teach the word of God. We would always have prayer meeting, you know, on Wednesday nights. But I never liked prayer meeting because all we ever did was pray for the sick people never go to heaven. You know, and never really pray about stuff that was worth anything. So I would change prayer meeting to me teaching the Bible. But a lot of times over the years, and as you know, on the Wednesday nights, that's the cream of the crop. The people that will show up on a Wednesday, you know, you all are the best ones. You know, you, you know that, right? You all just, you all, you all understand that. I remember as a pastor over the years, before I'd start a Bible study, I would ask people what I thought were the cream of the crop. What you and Jesus have been talking about today? I'm not going to do that to you tonight. 
but there'd be crickets. Folks, it's sad how many people say, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, I know Jesus is my Savior. Do you know him? Are you growing in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? When I was in Virginia last, I had the privilege of preaching many different places. But the last Bible study I taught in this one home, we looked at the fact that 2 Peter chapter 1 goes on and says that we're to make our calling and election sure. That we're to add to our faith, knowledge, and virtue, and love, and brotherly love. You need to make sure you know him. Don't just say, well, I'm a believer, I'm Christian. No, 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 no. There's going to be many Let's say, didn't we do this and didn't we do that? No, do you know him? Listen to our closing passage tonight. Go to John 17. John 17, verses 1 through 5. Because if you know him, as the judgment comes on our nation in this world, you'll be fine. He took care of that servant, Ebed Melech. He took care of Jeremiah. He took care of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He took care of Ezekiel. Those who were his, he took care of them. John 17, listen to what Jesus prays. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh. To give eternal life to all you whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus said eternal life is to know God and to know Jesus. I'm going to be honest with you. There are many things that God's doing through my cancer right now. But the biggest thing that I am experiencing that I believe God is talking to me about in the journey that I'm on is that I would get to know Jesus intimately more. I know him. I know I'm saved. But I don't want to live a life where I tried to live my life following the teachings of Jesus. Do you understand what I'm saying? I could try to live my life following the teachings of Jesus and do it on my own strength. I'm not questioning my salvation at all. I'm now moving into Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 and following, where Paul says, I want to know him more. Forgetting what is behind and stressing on, straining toward what's ahead. Oh, and by the way, that does passage does say you have to fellowship in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. As God is weakening my body, as I am tired, and I spent most of today in bed, I got up in time to go to a board meeting that I'm a part of, and I was there for the board meeting, and I just came home, and I laid in bed. My wife can tell you I stayed in bed till almost time to come here. As my body is tired and as I deal with nausea, as I'm not the energetic go-getter that I've always been, I don't want to miss what Jesus is doing in my life. And one thing I can tell you he is showing me is he wants me to know him more intimately. Now, it's going to look different for Jim than it will for anybody else, and that's okay. Because just like I have a different relationship with each of my three kids and love them all the same, but my relationship with each one is different, his relationship with me will be different than it is with you. I'm going to ask you, do you know him? I'm not asking, are you saved? Are you growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? And if that is your focus, all the other stuff falls by the wayside.
I love you. Thanks for coming. We'll see you next week.